All right. Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine, and I'm here with Rob and John. Hey, guys. Hello. And this week is my turn. I picked a story called The Lady Tigers by Nick White. I had never read this story before, but I read the first couple paragraphs, and before I finished, I was like, this is going to be a good one, so I'll use it. I'm going to read a section about halfway through that kind of gives the backstory to the scene that this starts with. The week after he had told his mom he liked boys, his dad confessed to inappropriate behavior with one of the lady tigers. Rusty was stunned. Not because it had happened, but because he had been around his dad and the lady tigers for years and hadn't suspected a thing. After he showed no talent for sports, Rusty was tasked with being his dad's lackey, going with him to all the games, keeping stats, pretending to care. His parents were worried about him, the way he did things like a girl, though that's not exactly how they put it. Curious, they called it. When Rusty turned 17, his dad insisted he try earning a commercial driver's license and add chauffeur to his list of duties for the Lady Tigers Ball Club. To his surprise, he passed both the written and driving portions of the test. So he spent his junior year carting the Lady Tigers around the state, all while his dad had been sparking with one of them right under his nose. Rusty had been distracted by his own secrets that year. His name was Robert, but everybody called him Sparse because he was so thin. He was black and wore glasses and had a tongue as red as a canary. When Sparse's parents found out about them, they sent him to live with an aunt in Memphis, and Rusty had been so depressed he confided in his mom, telling her everything. His mom said at first that she didn't believe in homosexuals. Rusty told her he was real enough all right, but they both knew what she meant. She suggested that they keep this between them. So when Rusty's parents had called him into the living room one evening for a conversation, he assumed he knew the reason. His mom had caved. His dad knew. But no, he was all wrong. In fact, he probably couldn't be more wrong. His mom did most of the talking. Very factual. The details. His dad had done this and this, and now this was going to happen. Rusty recognized the words but couldn't comprehend the language. Which one? Rusty's dad wouldn't say at first, and when he finally told him, the name meant little to Rusty. Because they were more pack than team, and more team than individual people, he never bothered to learn their names. Who? Rusty's dad said, the pitcher. Oh, he knew then. Double zero. What? His mom said. What did you say? It's not important. She grabbed her purse and stormed outside. They heard the car pull out of the driveway into the street. She'll be back, Rusty's dad said. Rusty had his doubts. Dad, right, so I'm gay. What? No. What? Yeah. You sure? Rusty nodded. Hmm. His dad walked into the kitchen and poured himself three fingers of Crown Royal. The next morning, Rusty found his mom on the couch, dipping the ashes of her Virginia Slim into an empty can of Tab. Your father, she said, he's skedaddled. Okay, so that's the backstory. But like I said, the story starts in this scene where Rusty is still the driver for the Lady Tigers. And his dad's out of the picture by this point because the scandal is in the past. Um, there's a new younger coach that Rusty kind of has the hots for. And he's driving the team home from a game in a rainstorm. And um, there's a bus crash. And so this story is told like in the immediate aftermath of that crash and how the Lady tigers like kind of help revive rusty and and take care of the coach and it's him like thinking about the scandal and in those terms so it doesn't all happen in this like hindsight sort of way but i thought this section kind of explained it so like i said i just like stumbled upon the story but um i liked how it just started with something really uncomfortable and with a character's 
having to reconcile that. But I wondered if you guys liked it. Yeah, I really did. I thought it was really sensual. The The setting was like, it was, just felt like it was just a story. I mean, not to be like kind of reductive, but it was just a great setting for a story that's largely about sex or kind of what the, maybe a, not illicit sex, but unusual in, in the setting in the Delta. And it just kind of had like a humid feeling throughout all of it, the way that Rusty's kind of hung up on the sky. I thought it was a great kind of launching point for kind of probably how he feels inside, just kind of sour is the great word he uses in the first sentence. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah it was, there's some really beautiful descri- uh, natural descriptions. And it's cool when an, an author, a writer can describe a setting is just kind of mirroring how the, the person feels inside. And I thought that was that was kind of like the cyclones and the tornadoes. And right. it's just all this tumultuous weather. And this poor Rusty, yeah, he's really, that's kind of his internal state. Right. And you don't have to like, there doesn't have to be like a heavy hand in metaphor for you to get the tone and to, and to realize that they're connected, right? Like mm-hmm. when I read it, I wasn't thinking that she was doing something overt with that tactic but it comes across. You're in this dark setting and then something bad happens and then he tells you that something worse happened a while ago. And then it just, yeah, it set up something really uncomfortable. So, right, Rob mentions how this starts with a description of the actual, the storm itself. And so that first line is, Rusty sat behind the wheel of the bus and watched the sky turn sour. And then the immediate next sentence is, a year ago when his father had coached the Lady Tigers, he'd been expected to serve as the team's water boy in addition to his regular duties as their bus driver. But coach Culpepper, bless him, had no such expectations. He told Rusty he could stay on board. After all, Rusty was a senior and probably had important tests to study for he didn't so it like mentions that but then it immediately gets into the backstory it's like there's a storm here's the backstory and then it like shifts to the storm again it's like it's there the whole time but it's not i don't know i didn't think it was overdone yeah that was actually one of the things i really thought was cool about this was just the way in which it unfolds the information Mm -hmm. you know you read the flashback section but the way it leads into the flashback is really interesting the way it comes out of the flashback and just the way it goes back and forth with this is what you need to know now as it's unfolding really expertly done it's definitely one of those things too that um we talk about a lot in our writers group because some writers are so hung up about how much an author a reader needs to know in the immediate story like when the the story immediately starts like some writers think oh i gotta tell you all this and all this and all this it's like not yet you don't and this is not something you can necessarily teach but when you see it like you said unfolded this way kind of slowly and kind of methodically or just let me tell you this what he's thinking right now that's interesting enough to get you in the next paragraph you'll learn a little more later then you realize that you can kind of take your time and then it it makes it so the actual story the crux of the story which is that his dad was messing around with a teenage player that packs more of a wallop than saying in the first sentence Rusty is a bus driver. His dad <laughs> had a fling with a lady tiger. Now there's a bus crash. Like, how boring is that? Yeah, the story does a great idea of keeping its disguise on for a while. Because you figure, mm-hmm. okay, we're in like a, a closet high school story. And it's in a really cool setting, like a broke down bus. Cool. That, like, I'm in for that. That sounds fun. But then to introduce, I may be mi- mixing up the continuity, but then to, to kind of drop the bomb that Christine just explained, it gives the story, a, um, I don't know, it makes Rusty just this much more, uh, he wasn't necessarily a sad character. I mean, I feel kind of ashamed being like, oh, the poor gay kid pining after it. Well, I mean, so what? I mean, that's yeah. life, right? But then to kind of drop, no, like, that's not, it's almost as if the author is challenging to say the first issue isn't the issue at all. The second one is like, this is like yeah. when people really fuck up and you commit crimes. Like, the first, right. right. So I love when a story can kind of do that, but do it in such a way where you don't feel like you're being like monkeyed with. Right. It felt natural enough and it felt like, well, and particularly because the coach Culpepper is such a good kind of, you're kind of 
being led to like, oh, this guy is a little shady. He's a little handsy with the girls. He hits the girl in the ass with the water bucket thing in the in the first scene. And you're like, all right, I think I know where this is going. But no, you're gonna get like, a, a, you're gonna get the absolute worst version of the guy beforehand who's already who you find out is gone. Which is really fun. It's fun to see kind of Carl Pepper could be the dad in training, so to speak. That yeah. could be the first. You know, that could have been Rusty's dad, however many years ago, where he's like the hot, cool young teacher, and then he starts getting with the students. So. Really uncomfortable story, and that's you can't give a bigger compliment than that, you know? Yeah. When you feel kind of, Yeah, if you feel weird, and but you still want to read, yeah, it's probably that. worth exploring. I love that. And yeah, you're right. It's not so simple a story that this that it's just about a guy pining after an adult who's straight. Which I still, that, that that's story enough. is always like, yeah. interesting to me. Right. But then he adds on, my dad did this terrible thing, and also, isn't it weird that I'm the minor that's pining after the adult? Uh-huh. It just introduces like every angle of that. And then the girls become kind of the aggressors after, mm-hmm. and they're sort of scary, and you don't you don't know what they're going to do to him. Right. I was I was nervous for him the whole story with the girls. I didn't trust them at all. Yeah, because they have this lingering. Because they're a pack. Yeah, they're a pack. He describes them that way, yeah. and they are wise to what his dad did, and yeah. they they know that he must have known part of it. And why are you still our bus driver? And isn't this like skeezy? Why do your eyes look like the bait? Like yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of cool like just icky stuff in here that's just so juicy. I love it. Yeah. I'd be curious how old uh, Nick Nick White is. It seems like a very young person. It seems like a very young person story, and that's not disparaging at all. It has a, just a lot of um, kind of fervor in that, and I think a lot of young writers love. I think a lot of young talented writers, as they're as they're getting going, they seem to just love to describe um, settings and stuff. And so I was imagining like this this is like someone in college, or this is someone who's twenty twenty five, and it was fun to to read it from a. I mean, I would really bet the farm that this is a, a, this was written as a really young person, and just you. Would you get the idea that this is, if not an autobiographical story, then it's, there just seems to be a lot of personal, uh, this seems to be a very personal story one way or the other. I don't, there's a lot of insight here that I don't think you would get. Yeah. At least I wouldn't be able to produce. Yeah, it seems authentic to the ages of the characters he's writing about and, yeah, like you said, knowing the details of some of these dynamics. I really liked the way that all of the softball players were described, though, because he did a good job, the the writer did a good job of showing them both ways, showing them the way that Russ you describe them as this like anonymous pack but then also as individuals and it's only after the crash when individuals are checking his pupils to see if he has a concussion and telling the other girls like calling out commands telling them what to do with the coach that you even get their actual names yeah i don't even know That's if it's names point. i think you might describe them all physically but they're distinct they become distinct one one girl is like the leader she has that Didi. Didi, yeah. that moment that i really like that i marked it uh he calls them by their numbers yeah number 16, number 45, and Dee Dee. She says, uh, or the narration says, something like a smirk fixed itself on number 12's face, and she told him to call her Dee Dee, which is a, uh, describes that, situ- that, that you can see what she's thinking in that moment. Right. And uh, it also introduces her more fully as having a name gives her a special place. Because of the smile? Because of the smile, yeah. The smirk, um, the fact that she, called, she, she told him to call her Dee Dee, especially in what its response to. So did you just run us off the road for fun or what? Number 45 asked. Or what, he told her. <laughs> Something like a smirk fixed itself in number 12's face and she told him to call her Dee Dee. She's like impressed with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, you're allowed to know my name now. Yeah. I know you don't know it. <laughs> Which is a really cool way to, you know, this is this is where that show tell thing always comes in. Is like, you're telling us that a smirk was on her face. You're telling us that she told her to call Dee Dee, but you're showing us her internal reaction to what, what's happened just now. Right. That she's impressed. Right. Like you don't have to say she she was impressed by that. We would know that just based 
based on those things. Right, because those are descriptors that Rusty is is seeing. He's watching her smirk. He doesn't know what she's thinking, but he's watching her smirk, and then he hears her say this, and he draws the same conclusion that the reader's drawing. Well, and because it's from his point of view, and he doesn't doesn't necessarily draw that conclusion. Sure, sure. He can draw that conclusion based on what he's seen. I don't know. That is one of those lines that does a lot of things all all in one quick sentence. What were you going to say, Rob? No, it's interesting that to watch a writer kind of deploy something new that late in the story like you don't get a lot of facial uh, descriptions in the story until then and as like as a writer you're kind of thinking all right where am i in the story and how do i keep how do i keep the energy up and so i think that that's a really great example is what haven't i looked at yet what haven't i told the reader yet what haven't i showed them yet and if if they're anonymous if it's an anonymous team you make one of them kind of emerge from the pack like that yeah that's really smart because what what do we like five six pages halfway through into the story at that point and you're, you're in a groove but i think it's up to the writer to be like always trying to stay a few steps ahead of the reader in terms of what are they going to be looking for yeah what are they expecting yeah not necessarily just plot but just in how like the sentence just what's happening in the sentence like what am i giving away and yeah the the show and tell i'd be curious if you would speak more on that john as far as because the the show and tell i mean everyone who's ever picked up a pen that's all you hear about don't do Mm -hmm. this don't do that and i'm curious what you think as far as why why that's a great example of how you can do it not not, i don't I, i try not to say should when it comes to art at all but how you like how you can do it maybe at what point what point should you start what point can you start thinking about when can I do a, sh- a show and tell thing yeah I think um, the reason that this one stands out to me is because the advice that I like about show and tell is uh, I think I read it in John Gardner he said um, the only time the only time you have to worry about showing and not telling is when you're, you're showing characters emotions and emotional states mm-hmm. it's more vivid because he was a proponent of vividness you know the mm-hmm. fictive dream that people are supposed to enter into when they read your stuff and maintaining that fictive dream is for him the number one priority so giving us sensory impressions is more important than interpreting those sensory impressions so for him the uh the showing interpreting it would be saying okay she had a smirk on her face she told her her name that means she's impressed right so you're, you're interpreting what we're supposed to take from that whereas showing us and allowing us to interpret it is usually what i think is meant by the show tell is give us the information that we can use to then interpret what's going on and like i said it doesn't even have to be something the character is aware of because we as readers can see it the way a character can and I think that's where show is the most important. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, I don't remember which one, but about if you're walking three blocks away, you don't have to show us that it's three blocks away by bringing mm-hmm. us along for every step along the way. You can just get there, tell us it was three blocks away, and then you move into showing us whatever is important. I think that's the that's the thing is what you want to highlight and what's important is what you want to show us because we need to feel it. Feeling it and experiencing it is the most important part of this. It also seems like it might be dependent on what type of narrator we have. If it's a first-person narrator, I think you can get away with way more telling because by telling, you're just you're getting insight into the narrator. Right. Yes, and it's doing like double duty. Yeah, you're really doing exactly. I'm doing. I'm writing a first-person thing now, and show tell never never really shows up on my radar, but I can feel at points where I kind of want to let the let the reins out with the narrator and just have him tell you exactly how he feels about what's going on. And I'm not so much interested as far as is the reader with me, but it's like if the narrator has that energy where you can tell yeah. it's you can kind of get away with yeah, it. Yeah, everything's kind of like levitating, like, okay, this is important right. because it's important to the narrator and you can tell he or she's into it. So I think yeah, I think the first thing a, a writer should think about, can think about, may want to think about <laughs> with show and tell is who's telling the story. Yes. Is it a third yeah. per, is it a third person where it's 
with a third person narrative, it seems like the reader is way more, I don't want to say more important, but closer, if that makes more sense. It seems like with the first person, the first person narrator can be really dominating or domineering even, and which I love. I love um, a first person narrator who's almost authorita- authoritarian. They're just like, this is my effing story. And it almost becomes half about the plot and half about what the person thinks about the plot. And so if you can get through show and tell through there, then it really starts getting interesting as far as, okay, if they're just telling me this, but why aren't they showing me it? And then you can, then there's kind of that double duty that Christine mentioned that's really kind of one to think about. I, I want to talk about more and do a few episodes another story but um, when it's a first person narrator I think the occasion of speaking becomes part of the uh, story or can become part of the story. Just the style of... Like I think of well who is this narrator and why are they speaking? Yeah. And you can get glimpses of that but those are things that become shown um, not necessarily told because if I'm telling you a story I'm not going to say like here yeah, we yeah. are sitting in this room let me tell you a story. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it's, I'm just going to launch into it. Mm-hmm. And then as we're going, I pick things up. Like we talked about in the Raymond Carver episode where um, this is dialogue. So it's, it's kind of like when, uh, uh, what was his name? The main guy, the, the surgeon who talked too much. And oh, what in we the conversation. About? Yeah. And we, we talk, talk about, about love. Talk about love. He was reacting to things that were happening in the room without the narrator saying so-and-so did something. Right. So it's the same way in a first-person narration is they might react to things that are going on yeah. as they're telling the story. It doesn't have to be that way, but it can be. And those those kinds of things are things that get shown because it's showing their state of mind mm-hmm. by the way they're telling the story. And what they focus on does the same thing. Yeah, why they're choosing to focus on this is the double duty. I love yeah. that expression. It's great. Which isn't to take anything away from third person. Third person has its own thing going on. There's right. nothing There's nothing like playing God to these people, I'm sure. Yeah. Which I, when I sit down and write a story, I'm, it almost, I don't really think, should I do this first person or third person? But it seems like there's just some, I'm not sure what it is. Maybe the, the type of story just seems, types of story seems to lend themselves to the first or third person. It is interesting in this story, it's in the third person, but it is, it, it feels like it's from it does feel like Rusty's it. point of view, yeah, right? It's yeah, close. it's like third person close, don't they call it? Yeah, yeah. Limited, third limited, something like that, or close, yeah. But if you were to ask me like six months from now, I'd probably say, was that a first person? Right. Right, because you know so much. Yeah, you know him and his thoughts, the way he's reacting to everything. But then there's this moment in here where... Uh He's summarizing what they what the girls are saying. Oh yeah, he's kind of like hearing them like fawn over the coach. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not. Oh, here it is. No, no. You can't edit this out. They mm-hmm. have to listen to all of it. The page flipping and the dead sound. Yeah, here it is. Okay. So, so it's from his point of view, but he says... Uh, Rusty's point of view. Rusty's point of view. and um, But sh- he's reporting what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. His quote... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Before that. She suggests another slap to rouse a number eight disagreed. Claims she'd seen something on 2020 about <laughs> how violent people got if you woke them up from being knocked out. That's sleepwalkers, dummy, number 45 said, which is a direct quote. Before asking number 12, if this is not a direct quote, this is a reported Mm -hmm. speech, right? If she thought it was all right, if she got up off the sissy. My ass, she said, is falling asleep. And that's a direct quote. (laughs) So the reported quote, if she got up off the sissy, is using probably the word she used, Mm -hmm. sissy. But he is not reinterpreting as if she got up off of him. Yeah, He's reporting it with the same word, which is, it is not a break of POV. It's not like you're breaking a rule or something. But to me, that feels like he's getting into her head more than his own. That makes sense. Mm. Does that make sense? As as Rusty? Rusty is, is thinking 
thinking of himself the way she's thinking of him. Oh, sure. By talking about himself with that word. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's one of the, this is third person, so you can you can do that a little bit more, with more facility. And you can do it with first person too, but I think it's it's something that happens in third person maybe more than first person. I, him having a cushion, I think, is critical for that too. I think you, you can really get away with stuff if, if someone's <laughs> if someone's got their noggin knocked around. That's right. Um, we were talking earlier about the way that the writer distinguished between the players by calling them by their numbers, but then referring to them like at the beginning and at the very end when they're like stomping off to, to find help as that pack of like girls wielding baseball bats. It reminded me of the Girls at Play story by Celestine because we talked about how that was told in this like first person group point of view and how it was so cool that the narrator in that story was a pack that they didn't distinguish themselves. I just thought that was an interesting dynamic. It's a, it's a really cool way to characterize a group of people, right? Mm-hmm. And to not yeah. see them as individuals, but for them to almost be more exciting on the page than if they were individuals. Because like Rob said, he got impressions from the fact that they were this intimidating bunch or they had power in a group, especially when it's the coach and the driver that are incapacitated. I think uh, as you begin to read, you're not necessarily, you can't follow number 45 number 12 right. like who's it's who it's too many but you you learn to eventually but um it lends itself to that group thing like you're saying whereas if it were names even though they're they might be all thrown at you at once and it takes a moment to really catch on they're still distinguished in that way right whereas numbers are less or more indistinguishable it just added to this menacing feeling of the setting and the backstory it, it made them a force instead of individuals it's just something to think about i don't know that i would think to describe a group that way to just add that other level well what would you guys copy from this or what would be a, a good takeaway do you think uh, my my takeaway was the thing i mentioned in the beginning was um just the way that information unfolds here uh, the way that the, the flashback is, is led up to and i read this a couple of times so there's um like rob laid out or well like you guys laid out in the beginning the way that first paragraph unfolds you know it kind of brings us into the current scene but suggests a past but we're we're really ensconced in that present moment right until we hit the flashback but the the moment that we hit the flashback is really interesting because it comes right after the crash right um a diagonal crack slicing from bottom left to top right of the windshield was the only evidence it left behind it of itself after it ricocheted off rusty lost control and sent them careering off the road and then the part you read the week after he had told his mom he liked boys his dad confessed to inappropriate right. behavior so it's like a break in the current action and right. kind of mimics that we just crashed everything's confused and we're going to step back and talk and like kind of bring ourselves in it actually reminded me there's a moment in my novel where oh look at him plugging his novel <laughs> the one i'm writing currently that will never be published you know oh, so don't worry mind. about looking <laughs> no but uh the character i forget the exact moment because i was only thinking about this in hindsight and didn't uh, look it up but he's doing something and something is about to happen or is just happened and suddenly i um step back and say the wind you know it was almost winter and the wind was cold or something like that and i remember always looking at that passage and thinking why did i do that why did i was it intentional break into that should i revise it should i change it nobody has ever commented on it nobody says this was really breaking the tension here so i have not changed it but this made me think of that because it kind of does something similar where we're really tense in this crash and then okay we're gonna take a breath and go to the flashback right and the flashback leads to basically what you could think of as another crash right Um, the next morning rusty found his mom on the couch and his dad's gone yeah your father he skedaddled where to she didn't know or if she did 
She wasn't telling. Boom, it's another crash, and then we're back to the moment. His glasses, his glasses have been knocked off, his shirt right. torn, which could be a reaction to either one of those two crashes, mm-hmm. right? He's just disoriented by both great. of them. So I think that's just a really... So as a takeaway, that gives me something to think about is the way in which I might insert a flashback or information um, of some kind or something that needs to be temporarily out of order. Um, how to insert that is kind of make, give it that emotional resonance. Um, that reminds me of the, the one piece of advice that I took away from that Sanibel Writers Conference that I went to a couple years ago, and it was specifically for novels, but it works with short stories, and it was that action, background, conflict development. So ABCD. And what people always misunderstood when I would try to explain that was that you don't start with the core action of the story. So in this case, you start with a crash, which is not the point of the story. The point of the story is his reaction to the girls at the end and how he feels about it in the context of this scandal and the past. But what the author, what the writer does is hook you with action. So he tells you all about the crash. And then by then you're ready to pause and listen to the backstory. And the backstory is the background and the development is the fact that you need the background to understand the current action to appreciate the ending. And it comes back later near the end right. um, they're talking about the situation like he's he's getting their point of view on it like I used to drive by y'all's house after I found out this was number eight she looked at her lap I used to think about driving my car into his bedroom and then uh, the couple more exchanges then he says I promise I promise Rusty was saying he saw his mom dipping ashes in the soda can she was telling him they'd be better off with his dad gone it never happened she'd said and I refuse to speak on it anymore and that is right back into that flashback he's mm-hmm. kind of pulled us in just by the topic and then this flashback ends with um oh, I'm sorry that's the flashback there then we number 45 spoke up what I can't understand is why you kept driving us and we get to another point where Dee Dee reached toward him and he violently jerked back she was only placing a sweat rag against his nose here he said mm-hmm. you're bleeding again this is this said uh, this is after uh he's just had a really intense emotional response to his memory and right. this is almost like another crash right. because he steps back we're out of the immediate scene again after that we get to the lady tiger stuck to their plan. As soon as the weather cleared, some two hours after the wreck, they were trailing down the interstate towards the spaceway. So that that moment where he breaks away from the current action again mirrors the same way he did in those other previous, which I'm calling a crash here just because the first episode of it was a crash, but it's like it reaches a climax and then we step back and we reach the climax and we step back. So it's really all the parallels are very interesting. We can learn a lot from as far as our own for our own stuff. Yeah, it's like the kind of idea I was having was have the story like be as much about itself as it can. It seems like the story's always kind of commenting not necessarily directly commenting on itself but it's looking for new ways to represent itself it's like the multiple crashes is such a beautiful idea and it's like how do I you kind of this kind of leads to what I'm interested in with the story is how do you establish a character ASAP how do I make you know who this character is in like I don't know the first paragraph that gives you like an 80% sense of who he is and the 20% you want to find out what she's up to and why she's doing it and that's like the most I think that's the most important for me period in like any storytelling form is what's the who's the person like who's the who's the vehicle of it and then you just try to make you kind of I love that idea of just kind of like the story's not necessarily unfolding but it's kind of always kind of just going back on itself it's like something going down a drain like in in infinity it's always like no I'm about this I'm about this because if you think about it the way kind of like your thoughts work you're always you're if you're if you're thinking about kind of like your own identity and it's always just it it really has a really circular feel to it like I'm getting up I'm like just kind of the way our days are arranged you're doing this thing again and again and you're picking 
picking up new information and you're subtracting it, but it's always kind of floating around the same core, the same drain. And if you can, if you can establish that immediately, I think people pick that up as an intuition that this is who this person is. And they're kind of, even, I know storytelling, you get, you have the arc traditionally, they, there's a conflict, there's a resolution, but I love the idea of that within that, that there's no, like you're always kind of making the same mistake. And yet there may be a resolution and you may have learned something, but there's no guarantee that the next short story about these same people, the guy's going to make the same mistake again. So I think if you're always kind of intimating that, particularly in short stories, because they have such a day in the life feel, that there's a resolution. But I love that idea of just being like, this is going to happen again and again and again. So yeah, that's kind of an abstract thing to introduce in a character. But I think you can instill the sense in of it just by showing someone's behavior. And you kind of get a, our behavior is so repetitive. Just kind of the way we act every day is the same every day. And so from scene to scene, people are going to carry like the same thing and you're going to make this because w- within those crashes, he's kind of, he's always the same person. So, so to see him mm-hmm. kind of not get anywhere is really satisfying in a, in, a, in a weird way. Yeah, we didn't really talk about the ending in the story yet, but I didn't find it particularly satisfying and it didn't really stick out to me. It was just a comment that Rusty kind of has to himself as he's watching the girls, like I said, walk toward like a gas station to find help. And he says something about wanting to be able to like hold them in his hand the way he can like on the horizon right, line right now with that like weird depth of field trick that you can do. And all he's really saying is he, you know, wishes he could protect them into the future, but it, it didn't feel like a like a an epiphany moment. And I think it goes to Rob's point that if you establish a strong enough character, the story will be satisfying as a whole, not because it reaches a resolution, but because it's like explored itself. That's a great that's a very good it's like a theme. Like there's a theme here. Uh, yeah, and I love the description of it circling the drain because that's how that's how stories like that feel. Stories that are trying to figure themselves out. I, f- I find that too in a lot of like uh, real first person stories where people are writing nonfiction and they're exploring an idea. And I love that feeling where it's like the author is basically telling the reader like I'm trying to figure this out too. I'll be there, quick with mine. Go ahead. There, there, there's one little thing. He did say he regretted not learning all their names. I think yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, a good part. very small shift in his character. And then a couple of paragraphs before the ending, he said, um, when Rusty got home tonight after being checked out by the hospital, he wouldn't, uh, wouldn't is an interesting, and if I'm talking about that, but I won't. Uh, he wouldn't <laughs> begin with the wreck. He would, he would cut to the quick, the baby. Why didn't anyone tell me? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He would ask his mom. He tried imagining her answer, but none came. So there's, there's a suggestion that some Something right. has changed here, but we haven't necessarily, we're not going to see what that changes. We, we don't is. get to see it. We don't get to leave the actual bus crash. Yeah. We just watch them go to get help. We assume that they're all okay. And then, yeah, Rusty's going to go on to have to deal with this new information. But we don't get the satisfying result of like 20 years from now what Rusty thinks mm-hmm. or what happens to the baby. Yeah. Yeah. My takeaway would just be quick, and I think I've said it before in other stories that we've read, but I just love when I read a story that's uncomfortable because I feel like I don't usually go for the uncomfortable topics. And look how well this turns out. Yeah. They're so satisfying. Wasn't that the take? Uh, the takeaway? Yeah, I definitely use it before, which, it. which sounds so <laughs> stupid, but I realize that I like these kind of weird stories. They're a lot more fun to read. All right, guys, that was a long one, but I think it was good. Thanks. <laughs>